Hello, my name is David Brooke. I am your co-host for a podcast. If you're listening to this, you probably already know, but I'm going to tell you, AIPT Comics podcast, which is hosted on AIPTcomics.com. I have a super cool co-host, and he's coming up right... Uh, actually, oh, he's coming through the door right now. Hey, uh, oh, hey! There, there he is. Hello, I am forced with two R's. I have adamantium bones, but I'm allergic to adamantium. Oh, that sucks, dude. So if I'm just kind of in the background of the audio for this one, and Ed, Dave usually does a really good job of editing this out, but <laughs> I think we're going editless this time. This is an uh, editless it's show. Gonna, <laughs> it's just going to be me going, oof, ow, Yep. This is the show where we talk about the latest comic book news, uh, talk about comics that we really, really love from last week, and then we talk about the week ahead, which includes... Uh, fun segments about the week ahead sometimes, but usually it's just about the comics we're looking forward to and the comic cover art we're looking forward to. That's basically a rundown of the whole show. Thank you for listening. And now we're <laughs> going to get into the news. Good night, is... everybody. <laughs> which is the beginning of our show. Always the beginning of our show because we want to talk about the things that everyone's talking about. We're going to put you in the know by listening right now. If you just listen to the show for a few minutes, listen to this part right now. Which is the part where we talk about the news. And our biggest piece of news, maybe not the biggest, one of the biggest pieces of news is Marvel Comics posted even more full-page ads in their comics this week. Now, Mm -hmm. if you've been following this podcast or you just read comic books, you know that they did a full-page ad for Jonathan Hickman's upcoming book for three weeks in a row? Four weeks in a row? Yes. Um, One for, well, kind of advertising both House of X and Powers of Ten. Yes, Hawks and pox. <laughs> and they did it again this time, but with a little bit more flair because there isn't just one person attached to the ad. No, no. It's multiple people. We're talking people like Walt Simonson, Eric Larson, Mark Wade, Al Ewing, Al Ewing, Al Ewing, eight times. <laughs> Brad Meltzer, yes. Joe Hill, Mike Alred, blah, blah, blah. There's so many people. And you know, it's getting people hyped for this August 2019 event. I don't know. Mm-hmm. What is it? Yeah, oh, wait. Yeah. We found out, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. Today, uh, or actually, sorry, on Friday, they uh, announced what this is all about, which is Marvel Comics 1000. We're not going to talk about that until a little bit later in the show, but we have um, some thoughts on the title of this. Yeah, and just, you know, big annuals and anniversaries and stuff in general. And I think we can really dive into that when we get into the segment later. Just to sum uh, up, it's an 80-page comic celebrating the history of Marvel. And it's 80 pages for a reason. Yes. Marvel the is... 80th anniversary. Exactly. A much more suitable name. <laughs> Marvel 80? Yeah. Or even yes. 800. Yes. But we can get into that. My bones hurt already. Oh, shoot. We have to hurry up. His bones are hurting, folks. Um, it's kind of a, I, I think it's kind of fun that they do these full-page ads for things coming uh, in the next couple months. I mean, DC doesn't really do stuff like this. I, I, not, that, not that it's better because it's different. It's just, I don't know. It makes it feel a little more special to me. It gets people yeah, talking. Absolutely. You know, I think the internet is really good at turning something into a meme really fast. Right. Um, like Endgame or Drake or anything, really. I could list off a thousand memes. I could list off a thousand SpongeBob memes. But Comics Twitter is especially good at this. Like, and it's so insular and fun. Like, if you're in the know, Mm -hmm. you laugh really hard at what creators themselves are taking the time to do on Twitter. Right. And when Marvel or DC or whoever really starts putting out announcements like this, Twitter is no more fun than those days for me. Yeah. Um, You know, Tom King and uh, Clay Mann put out some, uh, put out an advertisement for themselves for DC with the same kind of blue background with the same font over it um, with bat emojis, big, like, super pixelated bat emojis all over the top of it that just said, also in 2009, um, totally imping these. And I I thought that was funny. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, it's almost like they felt left out, but then it made it more, I don't know. Everyone's in this together. It just feels like a fun conversation, and it feels like a very open conversation. It feels like when something big like this happens, there's... So many angles for people to take, and it's kind of the only time that I actually like social media mm-hmm. because it isn't everyone telling Tom King to go kill himself or that he wasn't actually in the CIA or whatever, and that shit sucks. Right. 
but it's amazing and so impressive when you see how creative people are and, and how much they care about the community and how much they care about the art and stuff when given an opportunity to actually talk about it around strange and innovative marketing like this. In, a, in a, tilting the news in a negative light when it comes to uh, social media and Twitter, particularly, is the news that came out that Lionforge and Oni Press are merging. And I say negative because a lot of folks were fired in this merger. And yes. a lot of folks went to Twitter to tell the world, um, mostly editors and PR folks, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, primarily so. Um, like, I guess you could say administration. Which typically happens in mergers all the time because, you know, when two companies join forces, uh, there might only be one creative director standing at the end of it because you don't necessarily need two creative directors. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. part of it. So. When I saw this news, I actually immediately reached out to my contact at OniPress to <laughs> see what's going on. And I found out later that, you know, it's not working out so great. And I don't know if this is necessarily good or bad for the comic industry in the long run. I mean, we're essentially taking one more publisher off the market, right? But both publishers are kind of small. Lionforge is mostly doing kind of indie graphic novels. OniPress is doing more... Single issues, they've got some um, properties like Rick and Morty, but together maybe they can be stronger. I don't know. But the sad news is a lot of folks lost their jobs. Yeah, it's and it seems to be disproportionately affecting Oni in particular. Right. Um, which really bums me out because I think Oni has a lot of great minority representation that Lionforge does not. I guess Polarity, the parent company of Lionforge, is now like mm-hmm. the main... Uh, parent company. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's why they would fire more folks from Oni. Sure. Because Oni's, um, Oni's merging with Lionforge. It's not the other way around, I guess, is one way to look yeah. at it. Yeah. And merge, again, is a strange word for this. It's And that's, it, it is ostensibly what they're calling it. Right. It's almost like an acquisition. Right. Though. Yeah. Um, and and when, you, when you're looking at an acquisition from the outside, you can take people's word as they come out of the organization, as they spin out, like you were saying, because people do lose their jobs because you can't have two people doing the same job. Right. Right. But you can take their word for granted or you can take it with a little grain of salt because they may be bitter and they may be upset that they lost their job. And I don't think anyone should lose their job. Mm -mm. But this in particular seems especially weird and egregious to me. It's like if you if you go to Twitter and you look at the news about this, there are a great number of people of color or people of minority representation, queer folks, women and stuff, um, largely from Oni saying that they were fired. Mm -hmm. And that gives me a lot of pause. And it makes me feel like I'm not just taking it with a grain of salt. And I, I don't think that it's just bitter people. You know, you're watching an acquisition Mm-hmm. play out in real time and you're watching a larger company consume and totally change the culture of a smaller company that happens all the time in the private sector right there are businesses whose entire business model is to buy businesses to compile them to strip them for parts and sell them right oni and Lionforge and a lot of other comics publishers and stuff are slightly different in the fact that they produce content that a lot of people glom onto and that they are avenues for creators, right? Mm -hmm. So they're hiring editors, colorists, letterers, and then writers and artists as well. And so you're also seeing a change in the content that those publishers represent by changing the workforce that works for those publishers. Mm -hmm. It's a much bigger domino effect than I think some people think right. when they see Lionforge and Oni joining forces, whatever. Whatever marketing spin that they want to put on it. Matt over at um, Comixosity actually sent a couple of questions to Polarity about that. And they said, well, we have a great track record of representation. I didn't even know what Polarity was when I saw this news. <laughs> right. Um, these publishers have a great track record of representation, was basically their statement. It's over on his Twitter if you want to look it up. I think he may have also published it on Comixosity. Um, That's not a response. That's not an answer. That's, yeah, and? 
What about the future? Because there's a huge difference between the people that are being let off, laid off from their jobs and what you're saying. And I, I find that so, so disappointing. And I find the truth, I think, here significantly more worrisome and disappointing than you might during a normal merger or acquisition where the fact is that two people can't have the same job. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that really bums me out. It really bums me out, especially as a queer person who is already hungry for more representation in comics. It really bums me out as someone who really loves comics created by people of color and by other queer people and by seeing smaller imprints heralded and shepherded by really, really great minority editors who have been cut. And I know I'm on a bit of a soapbox now, but it means something to people. I don't feel like the answer we had great representation or we have great representation is adequate. It makes my bones hurt. <laughs> they were already hurting before. They were already hurting. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how things pan out as things move forward. Obviously, we'll find out more information about who's doing what at the company because right now it's pretty much up in the air. Um, right. Not to mention right. what the name of the company is. Is it right. just Polarity now or is it Lion Oni or is it Oni Forge? <laughs> Oni Forge? Oni Forge is pretty good. And, I, you know, ultimately... If this means comic creators will have a better opportunity at this company, maybe that's good. I don't know. Sure. I don't know if either company was in trouble, though. That's the other thing. Like, was this really necessary? I think that part is fascinating as well. But I think the Oni president basically just sold it off to Lionforge, right? Because I think that both their, their books, their imprints, and their distribution were great. Right. Their reviews certainly were. I know that you can't necessarily mark that up to sales and not parallel or anything like that. But yeah, it seems strange. I don't know if it was a consolidation of distribution channels, maybe. We did talk last week about, you know, um, I think the name of the company is Richard and Taylor. One of the primary distribution oh, yeah. mm-hmm. channels for Diamond. Right. Stopping their retail distribution. So so that, that kind of news could have been coming down the pike for a long time. Mm-hmm. And you may see more publishers consolidating because of stuff like that. And certainly, you know, they have to control and they have to fund fewer and fewer channels to distribute their stuff. I definitely think this to, re- to retail markets at the very least, because obviously the Internet is a vast and wide space. You can use Gumroad. You can use Issue. You can use whatever else to put things out there. Right. I think that that may be part of it. I think this it is could have gonna, just been a sale. I think it helps Lionforge more than it helps Oni. That's for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially given that you see the damage is largely being done to Oni. Right, right. Um, And again, I I would take a second to step back and say, I don't want to assign a narrative to anyone. I don't want to say that Polarity and Lionforge is staffed by racists and whatever. You know, that's not my point at all. Mm -hmm. My point is that in, in restructuring a company... I don't think that they're being as culturally and inclusivity focused and conscious as they should be, especially when people were coming to Oni for those products. Right. It sends the wrong message. Yeah. And it seems almost like they didn't do any market research. It's uh, personally, I feel like it's very strange that they come out with this and literally the day of the news, people are getting fired. Yeah. That also seems like it could be a cause for concern because if you're just like, oh, we bought you now you, 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 and you are fired. Like it's almost like no one did any research internally to see who would be the stronger editor or whatever, PR person, whatever. Right. Right. So it comes as a shock. Yeah. And, it, you know, it could have been something that was as simple as, well, we want to keep all our Lionforge folks, F the Oni people. Yeah, but, some sort of seniority bonus, basically. Right, right. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's kind of weird. It's going to be interesting to see how this pans out uh, and how it changes I mean, the it, company. It's weird and it's disappointing. I love comics. I am consistently frustrated and disappointed by the business of comics. Right. And I guess that that's all I have to say about it. It's across all publishers. Something that we're always disappointed with is delays. <laughs> Wait, never mind. I'm not done. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, Heroes in Crisis has uh, been rescheduled. Heroes in Crisis number nine has been rescheduled to May 29th, which is the final issue in the event. And we talked a lot about this a few weeks ago. Well, we talked a lot about issue eight and how upsetting it was. Yes. 
And I believe a certain force on this show, I forget his last name now. Yeah, I don't know how to spell it. I know how to spell his first name. You do remind me every show. Um, <laughs> he pointed out that Doomsday Clock and Heroes in Crisis could be connected in some sense, I believe. Yes. Yes. In regards to Flash. Maybe your, your villain might be as well. My villain? Yeah. Which one's that? You're the villain. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're the villain, yeah. There's there's a lot of stuff that is, like, all coming together. And I guess that's a good thing, because I guess that shows there's a master plan. But here, neither here nor there. Heroes in Crisis number 9 is coming out the same day as Doomsday Clock number 10. So so basically, both of these books have been delayed to the point where they're coming out at the same time, not intentionally. Whenever that is. Right. This was yeah. not the original plan, but now it is. And it's got people talking that... As Forrest said in a previous show, maybe this Flash thing is connected. Yeah, I think that it's either possible that that was the plan the whole time. Nope. There. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> or it's either possible that that was the plan the whole time. Yeah. There is one more issue of Heroes in Crisis, yes. and maybe they were like, "This is super weird. Like, we're trying to reference something from Doomsday Clock, or we're trying to reference something from." Batman and Superman, or we're trying to reference something from You're the Villain, and it doesn't even work in a vacuum. We need to attach it to some other story we're trying to tell so that it makes sense. Right. Or the significantly more likely scenario, which I think you were alluding to, this has been rewritten and rescheduled right. to fit into a larger narrative that also serves as a kind of soft retcon. Trying to fix what was broken in issue oh, eight yeah. and seven. Oh yeah. Wally West is a psycho killer by accident. He killed those people by accident. But he psycho did set up two people who are technically good guys uh, and made people think they were the murderers, which isn't very nice of him. <laughs> Wally West in. Well, run, run, run. I'm going to be in Europe when this comic comes out, so oh, I may not oh, read it. But if it ever comes out, I'm dying to read both these issues actually, uh, just to see what happens with Heroes in Crisis. And I've been reviewing Doomsday Clock. Yes, um, I think that friend of the podcast and former co-host Connor Christensen summed this up in our uh, work Slack very well when he said, "This really bums me out because it ties the release of Heroes in Crisis to the release of Doomsday Clock, and Doomsday Clock has been rescheduled more than any other book over the past couple of years." Yeah. We don't we don't so, have the historical data on what was the most delayed book ever. But I wonder what oh that is. Boy. I gotta go look it up. I mean, I, I I said that anecdotally and I said it kind of arbitrarily. Yeah. But I also feel like it's true. Could be. Yeah. You know something else that was pushed back? Mm. Marvel's annotated number four. It's been pushed by five weeks. Now it's coming oh, out oh, June twelfth. Now here's the crazy thing. You can all go read the entire story that is Marvel's already. And at any moment right now, you can go online and go to Comixology and just buy the whole thing. (laughs) But you won't get those sweet, sweet notes from Kurt Busiek and uh, Alex Ross for issue four for a little while longer. I wonder why there's a delay. Do do you have any uh, hypotheses? Marvel number 1000? I think that they were working on that. Oh, because Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross were working. Yeah, I see. Both have stories in Marvel. Is it really that hard to like look at every panel and go, oh, yeah, that's my sister. Oh, yeah, that's. (laughs) To put put Google Notes on a document. (laughs) I don't know. I really like the It's interesting. Marvel is really, I know you do. I know you do really like it. It's been good. Um, It's been fun to read the notes. And Marvel is really good at getting stuff out on time. Yeah. This is unusual. It is. They're not good at telling people when they're canceling a book, and they're not good at keeping artists on a book. Right. But they are good at getting them out on time if they intend for them to come out. Mm-hmm. So this is unusual, which makes me think that, yeah, Alex Ross and Kurt Busiek and stuff. It's not unusual to be. Mm-hmm. A lot of singing in this episode. There is. Um it, it makes me think they must have some other commitments somewhere. Do you know what else is Alex also? Ross does like 50 covers a week he does also so that's probably part of my it. theory is he has a time machine and just freezes time and then just paints that's <laughs> yeah only option do we all freeze too yes we freeze it is it when we're sleeping it must be hard how does this this is very confusing how do you use oil with frozen time because doesn't the consistency mm. of the oil need like air and i don't mm. know so this, this is the question we'll be answering in another show actually it'll be in two weeks we're going to answer that question on a show i'm not going to be on <laughs> 
<laughs> I should just do thanks that. For, thanks for committing me to looking that I'm up. I'm going to set up you for the next two weeks, or not next two weeks, but the two weeks after that, of, of things you need to look up. Anywho. I will, I will Google oil physics. Not unusual also in the news is uh, Netflix signing a first look deal with Dark Horse Entertainment. They get to get a first pass on anything Dark Horse puts out, right? To be turned into a TV show, presumably, for Netflix. Yes. Or it could be a movie too, I suppose. Yes. Clearly, Netflix is very, very happy with Umbrella Academy, or at least how many people yeah. watched it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Umbrella Academy was the most streamed thing in the world the weekend that it came out. I didn't know that. Yep. Look at you and your facts. So I would imagine that they are pretty happy with it. One thing that I thought was really funny is that um, Vice President of Original Content for Netflix, Cindy Holland, said of the collaboration's future, Following the success of the Umbrella Academy, we're excited to extend our relationship with Dark Horse Comics. The Netflix teams are already working in deep collaboration with Dark Horse to identify projects beyond the world of traditional superheroes, branching into horror, fantasy, and family entertainment that we think our members will love. No mention of the Polar movie starring Mads Mikkelsen, which was not very good. (laughs) Oh, yeah, true. That didn't work out so great. That did not work out so good. (laughs) I like how she was like, Umbrella Academy, good, huh? Mm -hmm. Other stuff? What? Now, do creators who work for Dark Horse, do they own their IP? Some do and some don't. Interesting. Um, Christian Ward and... G. Willow Wilson own Invisible Kingdom. Oh, that's sort of a example. separate thing because that's the um, Burger books. Yes. So I think in general, artists on imprints for Dark Horse own their work. Mm-hmm. But, and that's kind of why Dark Horse has those imprints set up. Right. But that, for the most part, no. Any any particular Dark Horse books that you're you're excited about the idea of being adapted? Oh, good question. Predator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess that works. No, I think Whispering Dark could be a really sweet miniseries. I I don't want it to be a movie. I'd like it to be a miniseries. Mm -hmm. That one's pretty Mm -hmm. good. I mean, obviously that one is coming out actually uh, next week in graphic novel format. So uh, it's at the top of my list because it's newer. I'm trying to think. Do you have any? Um, Yeah. Kurt Pyers and Antonio Fuso's Weird, Uh which is one of my picks this week. And um, Tyler Crook and Colin Bunn's Harrow County. Oh yeah, that's a good that's a good pick. Mm-hmm. I think Harrow County could work great as a, a multiple season show. There's a lot of material there. A lot of issues of and that. The, and 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 the and the fact that it's kind of already built in as like this weird paranormal Southern ghosts and ghouls type story. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I think that there's a lot of room for. Monster of the Week type episodes, bottle episodes, and stuff like that that they didn't tell in the comics necessarily. There's there's some like back matter comics that like Tyler Crook wrote and drew mm. and stuff that Colin didn't work on at all. Right. Um, Colin Bunn being the official comic book writer of the podcast, by the way. But um, I think that the show could do those just as equally. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I wonder if the I wonder if Netflix can do something with the eerie or Tales from the Crypt. Does, does Dark Horse own those? Yeah, I don't know if they do. I mean, that'd be pretty cool, and then they can kind of compete with the, the Twilight Zone on CBS. There, mm-hmm. that would be cool. I would like to see a Goon animated movie. I actually kickstarted yeah. that. Did you kickstart that? I did not, but that sounds rad. I think it was a Kickstarter. It was something. I spent money. I, it never came, <laughs> and it never became something. But I wish it did. Or maybe uh, what's the other one? Grendel would be kind of cool. Mm-hmm. coolest mask and the biz yeah they they have a lot of cool properties you know who else has cool properties people who came out with really good comics last week which we're about <laughs> to talk about in the top books of last week segment where we talk about our favorite two books from last week we also talk about the highest rated critic comic from comicbookroundup.com and the highest rated fan comic according to comicbookroundup.com so, Critic Comic, Ice Cream Man number 12 by Maxwell Prince and Martin Morazzo. This is actually reviewed on AIPTComics.com by Ari Bard. He gave it a high score, a 10. He contributed to the fact that this has a... What was the score? Oh, my God. I don't have it written down. Oh, no. <gasps> All right. Well, you know what? I'm going to guess it's like a 9.4. <laughs> and uh, I haven't read a single Ice Cream Man. I know that's horror. I know that this issue is a sci-fi horror. So, 
I mean, that's a gimme. Everyone likes sci-fi horror, right? True. I do. Sure. I mean, who lo- who doesn't like, love people Alien? Like a- people like Alien. I was going to say that. Who doesn't love Prometheus? I mean, the best Alien <laughs> movie there is in existence. Yeah. <laughs> the fan-rated, highest-rated comic was Friendly, Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man number 6 by Tom Taylor and Juan Cabal, which I reviewed and I will be talking yes. about in a minute because that yes. comic book rocked. I- um. It looks like Ice Cream Man number 12 got a 10. Really? And Friendly Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man has a 9.6. That is a crime. It should be a 10. It should be a 10. <laughs> Forrest, what was your second favorite book of last week? My second favorite book of last week was Star Wars Age of Rebellion Boba Fett, written by Greg Pak with art by Mark Lamming. Um, we talked about this a little bit before the show started recording, um, and I know you you reviewed it for the site. You gave it a seven point five. Oof. I think I I think I probably would have ended up somewhere in like the nine range for this. Um, there's not a lot to glom onto here. It's a very um, static, bare bones story of Boba Fett pursuing a bounty kind of relentlessly across the desert. Um, the the bounty runs away, tries to bargain with him, blah, 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 blah. And Boba just pursues. And he rides a mechanical horse alien thing. And it fucking <laughs> rules. That part does rule. But it's it's very quiet. It doesn't mm. – there's other people like talking at Boba Fett. There's other people um, trying to dissuade him. There's other people trying to – Beg, steal, and all sorts of shit from him, but he barely talks at all. In fact, I don't think he talks until the very last panel. Mm-hmm. But and I can see people being turned off by that actually. But I thought that it worked really, really well because George Lucas's original idea for Boba Fett and for a lot of the bounty hunters in Star Wars was the archetype of the man with no name, a cowboy character who rides into a city or a town or somewhere and changes everything. He sure did talk a lot in that cartoon though. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, Chewbacca, what are you doing? Remember that voice? <laughs> oh man. <laughs> that uh, the the cowboy character that changes everything from the outside. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Because they are dispassionate or because they are super passionate. I think I said in my review that he's a force of nature. Yeah. And I think that that's very apt here. Um, it, Boba comes across as maybe disconnected or uncaring. And certainly I think that that's how a lot of people feel about him and they think about him. And Greg does a great way of just writing the script that Mark is set up to execute with the, with the art in that way. Like he's just shooting people in the back of the chest, keeping on moving and stuff. Um, until he comes across someone that's been hurt and he stops and he gives them some water. And I was like, whoa, hold on. You know, there is a little bit of nuance to this. There's a little bit of like, Boba is constantly calculating about the things that he needs and the things that he wants and how, what is the best way to get his quarry and stuff like that. And there is an eventual twist ending that is like, all right, maybe he's just a badass. But that little bit of nuance in the middle of it, which I don't really want to spoil too much, um, I thought it was really well done. And I liked that it took a character that people have written a lot about and imagined a lot about and kind of talked to death about in the prequel movies and boiled it back down to like the bare essentials of what made him an attractive character in the first place, which is this cool, externally cool looking character with a very deadly, very dangerous skill set. And an awesome helmet the script worked really, really well for me in that regard. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. The age of rebellion comics have been pretty sweet from Greg pack. I'm really excited to see what he does on star Wars with number 68. I think he starts. Yes. I believe that's right. The man knows how to write star Wars books. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is a larger takeaway too, for me is like, I, this totally fit in with what I, one out of an age of rebellion type story next up actually next week is uh the lando comic uh that greg pack's doing and we have a preview on aptcomics.com they go back to cloud city folks we get to see lando manage cloud city i'm excited for that <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. I, there's a lot of cool stories to be told right now i think what's next luke skywalker i think in the series 
Mm. I, think, I don't know. I, that's after I do love the Bounty Hunter ones. I think they're really well done. Yeah, the IG-88 story was yeah. sick. Yeah, Size Burrier's IG-88 story at the beginning of the annual. That's the one you were referencing, right? See. That, <laughs> that rule. <laughs> bueno. Um, what was your number two pick? Uh, my number two pick was Under the Moon, A Catwoman Tale. Not number one. That's just It's a graphic novel uh, from DC Inc., their young adult line. I believe it's the second book in their young adult line. Yes, Mara Tidebreaker was the first. Yes. It's written by Lauren Miracle, and the art is by Isaac Goodhart. This is a book that I was trying to get my girlfriend to review. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was like, you're going to like this. It's not superheroes. Because it isn't. They're they're not in tights and they're not fighting crime. It's about Catwoman uh, growing up. She's basically in high school for most of the book, but it starts, uh, we have to just get to see her when she's young. And she, it's a, a, t- a total retelling of who we think Selena Kyle is, who we think Bruce Wayne is. Bruce Wayne still loses his parents, but he's also in high school. You know, he's not, you know, a boy fi- crime fighter in this. I think that it's using the themes of the characters in an interesting way, but not with tights, not with fighting crime. And Mm -hmm. Miracle does a fantastic job, I think for a young adult book in particular, because there's a lot of messages in here about uh, how you deal with abuse, um, how you deal with self-harm. There's a third one. Oh, homelessness. And Mm. all Mm -hmm. of those things happen to Selena in this story. And she deals with them. And the voice of the characters, the dialogue, is just so on point. You are transported into this young girl's life and you feel for her because it's so well written. Now, of course, the art is really good, too. Almost the whole book is cast in a blue, uh, just mostly blue lines and, and shading with some 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 little interesting plops of red and other colors here and there but mostly for emphasis and that blue really imbues a sense of sorrow a sense of deepness that i wasn't expecting when i started reading it as i said before i wasn't intending to review this uh, but i did for amputeecomics.com i gave it a high score and i don't know i would i think that young adults you know going through you know teen things could read this and learn something could grow from it Mm -hmm. and if you're not a young adult and you, you still get something from it. A deep, a deeply emotional story that's meaningful. Yeah. No, I mean, it sounds really cool. I liked Mara. So I will definitely check this out as well. I was intrigued by the free comic book day yes, teaser. Yes, that there they was. Put out. And I think it's like 200 pages. Um, you get a whole story right there. Yeah. I, I think they're good deals. Um, and I also think that what you were saying, you know, dealing with homelessness and dealing with um, poverty and all sorts of those things and, and then also in parallel taking away the characters costumes and stuff yeah. makes a really poignant point about what it means to be a hero mm-hmm. yeah and that it isn't necessarily the cape and the cowl it's how you deal with things right um so i'm i, I will look into it yeah it gets to the core of that i mean selena she still robs obviously that's part of her character like stealing stuff sure but she does it for the the right reasons, I think. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think she, that is in and of itself more nuance than I see in a lot of superhero comics. Right. Yeah. I, I don't think there's, there's going to be a sequel. I think this is it. Yeah, I don't think that they're doing sequels to any of these unless they're wildly successful. Yeah, this one felt like it could, could continue. It actually kind of ends like, oh, what's next? Uh, but... It doesn't need being Catwoman, I guess. <laughs> I guess, yeah. She puts yeah. on a Catwoman like hoodie at one point, and I'm like, uh oh, are they gonna go in this direction? Anywho, that's my second favorite book. What is your number one, Forrest? My number one pick is Weird Number Three. How weird? Written by Kurt... <laughs> sorry, written by Kurt Pyers with art by Antonio Fuso, and um, the reason that I chose it this week is that it is because, for lack of a better word. Very weird. Oh, man. I, t- <laughs> I stole that thunder from you. I have been a fan of Kurt Pyers' writing for a long time. I have been reviewing his stuff since he was putting out books for Black Mask. And um, we're quasi-friends. Um, and he sends me, you know, advanced review copies and stuff. And I always relish the opportunity to read them. And very few times have I been excited. <laughs> Sounds like backhanded compliment, but it's not. Um, very few times have I been really authentically excited by a book, like I have been by Weird, because it walks a um, 
really fine line between like high crazy espionage action like metal gear solid-esque action and a more nuanced deeply personal and effective emotional story that is more about existential dread and loss and immortality um the main character peter weird he can't die and in the early issues in the first issue of the book that's presented as a strength he you know he literally punches through a guy's face and stuff and he's like you can't knock me down bud i can't die i'm telling you i can't die and there's this whole fight scene where he's like i can't die you know mm-hmm. and he's he's being cool and he's being cocky he's being badass like you would want a hero to be but then by this third issue he's lived so long that he can't remember the people in his life that mattered to him or who they were, or who he is, really. He's gotten so far away from his identity, and he's just this agent of power and recklessness and harm being used by an agency to solve the weirdest cases in the world. And he he's kind of starting to wonder, like, how do I reconcile my own identity? Am I anything more than my power at this point? Am I anything more than a superhero? And how long have I been living a life where I'm nothing more than someone that punches people real good? Which I think is a really interesting take. And I think it's a lot of character development for even just a third issue to have touched upon so well. I think that that's something that Kurt Pyers in particular is really, really good at doing. And Antonio's art in particular, or in parallel with that, is just a great and evocative echo of the story it gets really really weird here like a man starts leaning backwards on an asteroid and his head explodes in light Hmm. and stuff that's Um, cool and it and you wouldn't expect that right it's almost morrison-esque but it works so so well because the larger story is a very good and relatable one about identity there's also a really cool badass scene at the beginning of the book where <laughs> a guy on a plane kills a bunch of people. I don't know why, but it reminds me of Groundhog Day when you were describing it. But that's not right hmm. at all. I mean, it is in a sense because we've seen multiple times where he tries to jump off a building and kill himself. Right, right, right. right. He's sick stuff. of living. Like, yeah. He's sick of living. And, and obviously that's a story that's been told before. But this does feel a little bit different to me given that it is – using the pastiche and the iconography of superheroes in a new and interesting way. Hmm. It's interesting you say that because my pick for the week, uh, I saw some criticism of it uh, on Comic Book Roundup, other critics, because I reviewed this book. Mm. I gave it a 10 out of 10 mm-hmm. on AFTComics.com. I, I would have given this a 10 out of 10 as well. I saw some criticism. It was like, oh, we've seen this done before. And I thought, so, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but not as good as this. <laughs> yeah. Of course, you know, you know, the more recent you see something, probably you give it a unfair advantage against historical you know, things that happened in the past. But anyway, this issue, Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man number six by Tom Taylor, Juan Gabal. It is it has everything you want in a Spider-Man story, I think. It's it has the heart, most importantly. It has action, it has great art, it has cool layouts, it has um a meaningful story. It's it's it'll make you cry and my number yeah. one criticism <laughs> of it was if you have no heart you probably will hate this <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't want to spoil yeah. it though and that's why i'm no, trying staying i don't think it. we can we do spoil a lot of stuff on this show but this one is special and it, it does kind of rely on a twist i will say that although that may be too mm-hmm. much of a spoiler but Needless, needless to say, uh, there's a lot of cool uh, villains in this. It opens with uh, Dr. Yeah. Octopus. Spider-Bite is in this. Yeah. Oh, we've been talking about Spider-Bite, I feel like, since day one of this show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's been a while. He's finally here. We finally get to see Spider-Bite. He's pretty badass. He's a good lad. Uh, I think last week you, you said that we were probably going to keep getting Spider-Bite in stories moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I Tom is really, really good at writing young characters. Right. Like Gabby. Yeah. Um, he also writes a ch- writes and uh, create created a children's show called The Deep. Right. So he's he's no no stranger to writing well for kids, um, and without making it feel like it's punching down 
right, at all. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of, I think he's really good at reminding you of how, you you know, when you were a kid, how it felt, you know, and how mm-hmm. you might have acted. Mm-hmm. And and also in this issue in particular, and if I'm hogging the limelight, I'm sorry, um, in making heroes like Spider-Man feel bigger than life. Right. Like, Spider-Man is my hero, and Spider-Vite very much sees Spider-Man as his hero. Right. As the he same should. way that I think Gabby sees her older sister as her hero. Mm-hmm. So those are our top picks of the week, guys. I recommend you go out and buy them at your local comic shop. And if you can't get over there, go to Comixology. Throw them some coin, even if it's Amazon. (laughs) And next year, make sure that the Eisners nominate Juan Cabal for that two-page spread in Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. Yes. Tom Taylor. Actually, I said... (laughs) Both of them. I said this in my review, actually. uh, Batman Annual Number 3 that came out last December. In my review, I said, Tom Taylor's going to win an Eisner for this. And then I I called it back in this review because I'm like, he's going to win an Eisner for this too for single issue. Yeah. As they should. In our next segment, Trending Now, which we don't do as often as we used to, no, you know what trends make my bones hurt. <laughs> oh man, how are those bones, by the way? My okay. In all seriousness, my left knee hurts a lot, oh my God. and I really do think I should get it looked into. <laughs> <laughs> See that the podcast is saving lives. Um, in our trending now segment, where we talk about something trending in comics, one thousand issues. Been a lot of one thousand issue milestones lately. Uh, Action comics, detective comics, and now. What is it called? <laughs> Marvel Universe? Marvel number 1,000. Yes, Marvel number 1,000. They've yes. reached 1,000 issues. It's taken longer <laughs> than most thought, uh, okay. but they've reached 1,000 issues in a series that never existed. You know what I would say? <laughs> it took me. It took them a hell of a lot less time than I thought it was going to take yep. to get to number 1,000. This is... Basically, they're slapping 1,000 on a cover, oh. a beautiful cover, I'll say, by Alex Ross. Yes, Alex Ross's art is fantastic. And the Captain America does look a little gaunt. He does. Um, his his face is a little skinny and weird, but everyone else looks awesome. Thanos looks amazing. Yeah, everyone else looks rad. We talked about this earlier in the show where uh, Marvel basically teased a lot of creators that are going to be doing something in August, which is this book. Uh, yes. 80 pages, one page per creative team. Or in the case mm-hmm. of Alex Ross, one person is the team. Yes. Well, there's <laughs> another, Ryan Stegman and Ryan Stegman. Oh, I didn't see that. Says. And uh, Chip Zdarsky says Chip Zdarsky because no one else would work with him. Right, right, right. Yes. So you know that's going to be a good, funny one. There's a couple good goofs in there. So every Although Chip may punch you in, in the stomach with the emotions. He's good at that. He's too. very. Check out his Twitter. He's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, every page of this 80-page book will be a different year in Marvel history, which is kind of neat. Yes. So I assume by the end it's... we'll get to 2099 or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That would be kind of cool. Although it would probably be more like um, War of the Realms or something. I think it's going to be, yeah. So this is trending now. Is it, This is a f- sort of a tongue-in-cheek trending now because it's not really trending now because, well, it is, I guess. Marvel's basically I mean, ripping off is. DC. Yes, they are. This is the most convoluted, cloying and annoying and obvious marketing I have seen mm-hmm. since uh, Marvel announced Acts of Evil to piggyback off Year of the Villain only a couple months ago. Right, huh. right. Interesting. Wait. Huh. Um, it's so obvious. Yeah. I I don't begrudge the book itself. No, we're going to buy it for sure. I'm going to buy it, but why not name it Marvel number 888 or Marvel number 800 or Marvel number 880? Or or fuck it. Just put a comic out that says 80 on the front with all the Marvel characters filling in the 80 like you're using for the anniversary. Yeah, that would have been cool. I would have snatched it up. But they're doing this weird, like, inauthentic marketing... That's like this quadratic ass formula. If you go all the way back to Marvel 1939 and it's historical and it's symbolic and it works for us. It's a thousand issues and a thousand chapters of our lives and years and stuff. Um, it the, One of the editors went so far as to say in an interview with New York Times, the number is symbolic. Mm-hmm. 
and and that just makes it so obvious to me that they're trying to capitalize on the success that Action Comics and Detective Comics had. Um, and the and those books got there uh, again, arguably, but got to those numbers a little bit more authentically and organically than this Marvel book is. I mean, when Brevroot said in the interview, it, it was a symbolic thing. Yeah. It's kind of like, okay, you're kind of just grasping at straws with this one. Right. Yeah. It's basically like putting being put on the podium to say, explain the book you read last week. Right. <laughs> I mean... Why did you... It's particularly weird because Marvel Tales ended at number 159. Right. So... <laughs> yeah. It doesn't make any sense. I, you know, I would love to live in an alternate universe where they put out a book called Marvel 80 and see the sales compared to Marvel 1000. I have a feeling mm. Marvel's probably right if they're trying to make money. Sure. I think that you can look at last month's sales and see how well Detective Comics 1000 did. Which we talked about last week, I think. Right. Right? Or two and, weeks ago. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and Marvel's already back on top with April sales. Yeah. Or the Realms number one was the best-selling book of the April. Right. Um, we may break that down next week on the show or something, but... Uh, yeah. What do you think will be the next 1,000th issue? See, and it's hard for me to tell now because they have started treating it like it's this play thing. My guess is Savage Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Eric Larson could do whatever he wants. So, <laughs> Because the, the closest book – well, that's, that's true. There's going to be a creator that does it as a joke. Right. Um, probably a vault book. Spider-Man Deadpool's over like now like, with issue 50, so they can't make fun of it. Right, yeah. I don't think Marvel would let them make fun of it. Well, they did make fun of Major X, it, though. It would be Black Mask or Vault or someone. Right. Um, Maybe yeah. uh, Karen Gillan can get this joke in with for his... Uh, <laughs> what's the book called? I just f- forgot the name. Peter Cannon. Yeah, Peter Cannon. Yep. Yeah, could be the last issue of that. Number 1,000. I think Amazing's actually um, getting up there. Spidey? Yeah. It's still in the 800s. Is it? Yeah, Aww. so I thought that as well, but that is the longest-running Marvel book. Yeah. And it's not anywhere close. Huh. They should tr- uh, quadruple ship it again. You know? <laughs> I mean, they are shipping it weekly right now. Is it? For Hunted. Oh, right, right, right. Oh, and they probably yeah. count those HU uh, issues. I bet they count the .hu those books. jerks. But, again, I don't begrudge the idea, just the marketing. Right. I don't begrudge Jonathan Hickman writing X-Men. Oh, my God, dude. Just the market. This is our 20th episode. Next week, we should do... <laughs> yeah, if he did Number 1,000. Number 1,000. Yeah, that'd be great. <sighs> um, definitely look into the issue of underrepresentation for this book because it is very serious. Um, I love Al Ewing, but he, he's writing eight stories um, here. He's, he's an author for eight of the pages. And there are only eight women in this book at all. So Al Ewing has as much representation in this huge historic book as all of the women that Marvel hired to work on it. And I think that that's pretty disappointing. I'm not necessarily looking forward to that as well. Right. Um, I think I think that we just need to... The same with Oni and the same with Lionforge. It just has to be demanded. Mm-hmm. And I think that writers that are writing these stories, as cool as and exciting as it is to be selected for Marvel Comics number 1000, they need to be like, what about the stories that aren't mine? Or, you know what, I'm writing Venom or I'm writing Avengers this week. That's going to do just as well for me. Can you, can you please give this historic thing to someone else? Right, because we it's a situation where we don't know who the... I, I don't want to use the word villain, but I'm going to. Who the villain is as far as why there's only eight women writers. Right. So it's hard for uh, the public to get angry at anyone in particular. So I think it requires the creators like Al Ewing or, or, or Zdarsky or whoever to say something about this. I think that it does. Um, because no one else is speaking for them. Yes. I think that the men need to use their privilege to speak right. here. I mean, we don't really know why the, he got eight stories. That seems particularly strange <laughs> outside of right. your point. It, like, what? 
The word is that he helped script the entire book. Aha. Interesting. But again, so I think it's probably one story that's being told over eight pages. Right. But but that also kind of betrays the whole concept of the book, right? True. And it's weird to me. I don't know. There's a lot of know. creators out there they could have hired for the other seven stories. Yeah. And I again like I get that I'm kind of on this soapbox this whole episode. I'm sorry, y'all, but it's a soapbox episode. I'm just so exhausted by the business of comics. You're so exhausted. Do you have enough energy for our next segment? <laughs> I do. We can talk about our top books now. What is your top book of next week? It does have to do with Spider-Man. Oh. Spider-Man and the League of Realms, number one, written by Sean Ryan with Nico Leon. Um, this is a War of the Realms tie-in that I'm actually pretty excited for. War of the Realms hasn't had a number of tie-ons that, tie-ons, uh, tie-ins that have really excited me. Like I think they're cool, Agents of Atlas, War Scrolls, all that stuff, but I don't really have the bandwidth nor the energy to like really delve into all those tie-ons for a lot. Tie-ins. I did it again. <laughs> Fuck, I did it I'm again. I'm going to zap you every time. My bones. Time. <laughs> um, I don't have the energy to get into all the tie-ins for a whole line-wide event like that. That's a lot. I mean, this is a big one too. But Spider-Man and the League of Realms looks hella cool. Um, basically it's Spider-Man leading <laughs> League of Realms has been around before um, it's Spider-Man leading the team this time around it is Spider-Man and a representative from all of the other realms so like Asgard, Midgard um, Jotunheim Svartelm, all that all that stuff leading a team, a strike force made up of representatives from all of those places on a very special War of the Realms mission. Mm-mm. I already really fucking love Spidey's look in War of the Realms. He's got like the Jotunheim helmet on and he's got a shield and stuff. And the whole concept of it is really silly and weird. And it's totally fun to have weird, kooky, crazy ideas in comics. Comics are supposed to be fun. Don't forget that, folks. Uh, um, and so Spidey hanging out with a bunch of like people that he definitely won't be able to stop himself from making fun of. Yeah is so exciting to me. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Yeah, no doubt. I also picked a Spider-Man book out next week for my top book of next week. It's Spider-Man Life Story number three by Chip Zdarsky and Mark Bagley. I was a little sour on issue one, but then I gave issue two a 10 out of 10. It makes it sound like I give tens and tens, tons of tens and tens out of tens every week. Do I? No, I don't do that, do I? I'm having a crisis. (laughs) <laughs> anyway are you are you a heroes in crisis this third issue i made you plural <laughs> is uh is in the 80s obviously this is a sweet spot for folks my age uh in their 30s mm. because we grew up in that decade and you mean old <laughs> yeah real old um <laughs> I, if you look at the preview i don't want to spoil it too much if you look at the preview at aptcomics.com you'll see that mary jane is prego's yeah spidey is also wearing some sort of like iron man like costume what Reed Richards has got white hair and he looks like he's having a midlife crisis. I don't know. It looks really awesome. It, the art is fantastic. Zadarsky's totally hooked me with the last issue. And I don't know if you know about this, Forrest, but there's a black symbiote suit that Spider-Man wore mm. once. And he, not, ringing, not ringing any bells. He has it on in this, uh, in this issue. Uh, well, we don't know yet how he gets it from the preview, but we see it on the cover. Fuck yeah, dude. So... I'm very excited to see how Zdarsky, you know, because this uh, whole series has been a spin on. To go hang out on Battle World. Everything <laughs> of Spider Man. It's going to be interesting how he spins it because clearly this is a darker, little more, um, I don't know, I don't want to say depressing, but it's sadder. It's a moodier time in Spidey's life. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting yeah. to see how, the, how, the, how a guy who's already kind of broken a little bit, mm-hmm. how he's going to react with a symbiote sucking the energy out of him and making him an yeah. irritable jerk. <laughs> <laughs> I live for that shit. Should be good. And Bagley, Bagley on it. It's so cool. Yeah. I mean, he was yeah. the Spider-Man artist. Uh, the, the very first comic I ever read was by Mark Bagley drawing it. And yes. Hook, line, and sinker right there, buddy. Um, but and, and I would say for me as well, a lot of people think of Todd McFarlane as being like the father of Venom's design. Right. It's Mark Bagley, y'all. Who said that? Someone said that the other day on Twitter. Oh, really? Yeah. and I, I, It's probably in my head because of that. Stegman replied like, and said, ouch, <laughs> or something, which <laughs> I thought really was funny. hilarious. I, I bet it's in my head because of that. But, like, I was thinking about that, and, like, 
the image that everyone knows of Venom or the one that gets used on T-shirts and shit mm. is the cover of Lethal Protector. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is Bagley. Yeah. Like, For sure. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting. His his Venom was more like lean, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Todd McFarlane always said he was supposed to be a, man, a house of a man. Right. And yeah. I mean, Eddie Brock typically is drawn that way, but the when what the he's si- bulky, yeah. I mean, he's obviously bigger than Spidey, but he he lifts. <laughs> so you lift, bro. You swole. <laughs> In our next segment, judging by the cover, Junior, we talk about our favorite comic book cover art. I'm going to talk about <laughs> mine because I like it a lot. <laughs> I think the adamantium is poisoning my brain. I'm sorry. Oh, no, you know, if you look at the cover I picked for Batgirl: Art of the Crime, which is a graphic novel by Margaret Scott, mm. Marguerite Scott, and mm. Paul Pelletier, the art is by Julian Totino Tedesco. This is the dopest cover. Okay, so I really, really like... It's actually on my wall. Peter Parker, Spectacular Spider-Man. It's number 101 where Peter uh, Spider-Man is jumping. He's got the symbiote suit on, jumping through the city, and you can only see him illuminated by the city's, city oh, yeah, skyscrapers yes. behind him. I know exactly the cover you're talking about. It rules. I have a CGC-graded yeah. version. It's pretty dope. Anyway, this Batgirl cover is a, similar in a sense, but it's using yellow and as light and sky and her costume and the city is sort of behind her she's jumping down at us and she's got a yellow cape uh yeah a little bit of a yellow cape right no it's her boots her her symbol and her belt and it's just very striking the use of yellow Mm -hmm. and you don't usually Mm -hmm. see yellow used like this because it's typically a color used for like anxiety and negativity highlights yeah typically I think. yeah 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 rather than like an entire cover like this it's yeah. also worth pointing out that she's gray the rest of her mm-hmm. so it's very striking and obviously Raphael's done a fantastic job with the cape it's got a life of its own the the shadow work here is fantastic there's little details in the boots clothes look realistic remember when we used to read comics in the 90s and clothes did not look real <laughs> yeah everyone looked like they were wearing a wet bodysuit right this yeah. looks like you could really wear it. Anyway, her, and she's got this great face, facial expression where she's just really happy. Like, she just loves life. Her hair is flowing. Fantastic cover. Yeah. What's yours? She looks like she may go splat. <laughs> yeah, she But she may but have. It does, it's, yeah, she's falling quite far. <laughs> yeah. I, w- I will say I've never appreciated Batgirl's design. The, yeah, because this is the gray costume. As much as this, because this is rad. Mm. Um, the, the shading on it is really fantastic. Um, my pick is the weirdest pick I will probably ever bring to this show. Um, it is for American Gods, The Moment of the Storm, number two. It is a variant cover by David Mack. It is a strange, alienating, dark piece of art. I would hesitate to call it an illustration or a painting or anything because I'm fairly certain that it is multiple types of mixed media, digital illustration, painting, photography, um, any paper mache, even maybe there's any number of weird things going on here. It's like there's the background appears to be painted wood. And then atop that is a, um, a painting of a tree. And then further down on the trunk, this kind of weird mix of various paints, pictures of, people's arms and faces and a mask and sketches a little drawing of an angel with a moon and a question mark above it all framed by um, obviously real cut out cardboard and on the outside of that um, who will mourn and hold vigil for the all father and on the right hand side shadow nods what looks like a picture of a real mask um, and then pieces of burnt paper with words on them that you can't really read it's evocative and it's dark and it's really really strange and definitely not something you would ever expect to see as a comic book cover um the only person i can think of that would get away with this or even consider putting this on their comic is neil gaiman Mm. um it reminds me very much of the paintings that david lynch does um there's a fantastic documentary about david lynch called david lynch the art life And he gets into his painting process and basically he says, like, I just stand in front of the canvas 
and I keep making stuff and I keep adding elements and taking them away and adding them and taking them away and chiseling away at stuff and feeling my feelings until I feel like I'm totally done and then I add one more thing. And that is kind of the essence of Lynch's whole prerogative, right? It's like this weird existential over-the-top narrative that feels really like stripped down but in your face at the same time. And this cover does the exact same thing for me. Um, it's got very minimalist outside that gets increasingly more intense and weird and hostile on the inside. And it is obviously, obviously, obviously very, very intentional. And I think probably very in line with the darkness of the script mm. on the inside. Mm, good point, yeah. I love the mixed media yeah. look. It's it's something not anyone can just pull off. No, absolutely not. I think only a handful of people in the world, maybe five people in the world, can pull this off. Right, for sure. Faux show. Yeah. <laughs> um, but <laughs> it's very cool. Very cool, very cool. Your, your faux show brought out the uh, soundboard of me yet again. I have a boombox on my shoulder. Um, I think we have one more segment. Just one more segment. Yep, yeah. it's called... Oh, shoot. I'm covering it. Off Topic Top Shelf. That's right. Mm. Our last segment. We end the every show with... <laughs> Uh, last week I got to talk about uh, Quentin Tarantino, a guy no one's ever heard of, and uh, this week Forrest gets the floor. Yeah, so um, this is positive soapbox or topic. Woohoo! Um, it's a it's a great pick. Um, speaking of someone that people literally have not heard of, I watched a documentary last week with my fiance called Remastered. Devil at the Crossroads about a um, blues musician named Robert Johnson. He is oftentimes referred to as, like, the forefather of blues guitar. Um, And there's a legend about him that he laid down his soul to the devil in exchange for how good he was at playing blues. Um, This documentary is really, really fantastic. It's on Netflix. I think it's only, like, 48 minutes of your time. That's not bad. But it gets into the history of Robert Johnson and how much he influenced people and why we should celebrate him and why more people should know about him. He only ever recorded like 25 songs to track. Um, On Apple Music, for example, he only has two records. I think that there are only a couple of 75 inches and maybe 45s pressed of his stuff. There's very, very little. But it goes all the way to modern day blues country americana and also like sludge and doom metal the the guitar techniques that he created (laughs) slide guitar and the, the way that he was playing his guitar both on the high end and the low end at the same time so that it sounded like someone was playing guitar and also playing bass hmm um it sounds like two people are playing guitar that he kind of has like dueling guitar behind him this was massively influential to people like Muddy Waters and Keith Richards and Motown and like literally anyone you can think of affiliated with blues or jazz, anything like that. Also kind of wrapped into this weird package that he was not a good guitar player for the majority of his life. People would say, oh, please, Robert, don't pick up that guitar. Right, that he really loved the music, but he wasn't very good at it. That uh, other musicians would be playing, and he would try and like play for them in between while they set up, and people would literally like leave the bar. Wow! While he was playing, he's a testament that we should all work hard. Um, and then he goes away for a year. No one knows where he went, and he comes back, and he's doing things that his mentors could not do just absolutely blowing everyone away. Um, And the lyricism at the time and how scared people were of blues music, um, calling it the devil's music and stuff, really kind of made it seem like he's singing about, I went down to the crossroads, I got down on my knees, I held up my guitar, and I gave up my soul and stuff. And, you know, he's, he's definitely being allegorical or metaphorical, but people were like, oh, okay, Robert went down and... He was sold to the devil, and now he's good at blues. Um, 
And so I think that there's a really interesting bit of like the history of blues music there, a little interesting bit about someone that has been really overlooked and shouldn't have been, and also like this really cool supernatural legend angle, kind of like um, Rock Candy Mountain, a great comic about the um, Rock Candy Mountain song. Um, so it reminded me a lot, a lot, a lot about the that. The comic was and, Kyle um, Starks, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, but based on the lyrics of Rock Candy Mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, and it reminded me of that. It's really, really cool. It's not a lot of your time. Um, and it's some history that I think a lot more people should appreciate than they do. Nice. Yeah. Thanks for the recommendation. Fall show. <laughs> That's the end of our show, folks. If you liked it, like it on Apple I <laughs> Podcasts. If you... Uh, if you feel like talking about how good it is, tell your friends. Write a review. And thank you so much for listening. Yeah, thank you guys. Bye. Yeah.